One thing that I really love are signs. Signs, I feel like, are one of the most helpful modern inventions, right? You're driving down the road, you see a sign, and it points you to where you should be going, right? Especially in the time before they had GPS. So now you just ask Siri where you're going, and then she'll take you there, which is really convenient. But before that, you just had to hope that you would see a sign, right? I remember uh, driving down in downtown Portland before GPS, probably 16 or 17, had no idea where I was going, and I saw a sign for I-5, and I was like, oh, I know what that is. And so I turned, and then I just drove, hoping to see another sign for I-5 that would tell me when to turn, right? And eventually, I ended up going the wrong way on I-5 and going south instead of north, and it was a big disaster and didn't get home until 10 o'clock at night. But for the most part, signs are really helpful, except there's other times when they're not as well. And so here's, here's a couple signs up here. Here's the first one. It says, caution, this sign has sharp edges. Do not touch the edges of this sign. And then down really small, it says, also the bridge is out ahead. I feel like the part should be a little bit bigger. Go to the next one here. This is a comfort in sign. Now pet friendly, that's good, except for bears. We're not making that mistake again. So not exactly sure what happened, but it uh, sounds like it was pretty terrible. Touching wires causes instant death. $200 fine. A bit uh, redundant here, cruel. Left lane must left lane! Not sure how helpful that is. And then, and then this one, don't ride your wheelchair careening down steep hills towards alligators. Not sure the purpose. It seems like that'd be self-evident, right? Beware wild animals, children. If you have children, you know this is a perfectly appropriate sign. All right, and then I think this is the last one. Anyone caught exiting through this door will be asked to leave. Again, a little bit of the redundancy here. Somebody paid to make that sign. Somebody designed that and sent it off to a company who made it and then sent it back. And so not sure how helpful this is. Well, what we're going to be talking about today is um, we are going to be talking about a sign, except it's a sign that is a lot more serious and hopefully a lot more helpful than some of these signs here. We're going to be talking about the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah is in the book of Matthew chapter 12. I encourage you to uh, turn there and we'll read the word together. Matthew chapter 12 we will begin in verse 38, we will read through verse 42, and I'll be reading out of the ESV version this morning. It'll also be up on the screen, you can follow along if you'd like to. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This is the word of the Lord. I want to set up a little bit of context here before we dive into this specific passage because we're sort of uh, entering into um, 
really kind of the middle of a conversation here that Jesus is having. So at Matthew chapter 12, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he really is at the height of his popularity. And so it's near the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. So he's drawing huge crowds that are coming out to listen to him. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's giving sight to the blind. And so he's at the height of his popularity, but he's also at the height of opposition as well. And so this, is, this whole chapter deals with some really contentious interactions with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The Pharisees, they were the religious elites of the day, right? They were the... the the top Jews, they were the ones who had huge sections of the Old Testament memorized. They were incredibly holy, or at least they thought they were holy and wanted other people to think that they were holy as well. And so they had a huge problem with Jesus. So earlier they accused him of doing miracles by the power of Beelzebub, basically the power of Satan. They were saying the only reason he could cast out demons is because he had a demon in him. And Jesus goes, what? doesn't make any sense. And then later, Jesus, he declares himself as the Lord of the Sabbath, and he heals someone on the Sabbath, which in their eyes was a Sabbath violation. And so, Matthew 12, 13, and 14, uh, Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees, and this is what he says to them. It says, then Jesus said to this man with the crippled hand, he said, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out, and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. So things are not going too well in terms of Jesus' perception in the Pharisees' eyes at this point. They are actively plotting to kill him, and Jesus is aware of that, so he had to withdraw from that place. Later down the road, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. So he's drawing battle lines here. And then all of a sudden, right in the middle of that, they're actively plotting an assassination on the Son of God, and they come up to him, Jesus being aware of all of this, and they say, why don't you show us a sign, Jesus? Come on, just give us a little something. What do you think? Do you think they're being genuine here? No. No, they don't care about any miracle that Jesus can perform. They literally just saw him do a miracle. And what was their response? Whoa! Did you see that guy's hand was crippled and then it just got better? No, they said, oh my goodness, did you see? Let's kill him. How could we kill this guy? That was their response to Jesus in this miraculous healing. And so Jesus knows what their intentions are. And so we're going to talk about three things from this passage. We're going to talk about the sign. We're going to talk about the story. And then we're going to talk about the Savior. The sign, the story, and the Savior. So first, what is the purpose of signs in the New Testament? What is the purpose of Jesus' miracles? And there's a lot of things that could be said about this, but one of these things we find in the book of John, chapter 10, and uh, Jesus is, is talking to, he's, he's um, praying here and talking to his disciples, and he says this in reference to his miraculous works that he's done. He says, The Father set me apart and sent me into the world. Don't believe me unless I carry out my Father's work. But if I do his work, believe in the evidence of the miraculous works I have done, even if you don't believe me. Then you will know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And so he's using these signs to point people to himself, 
He's using these miraculous signs to point people to Jesus. Here's what uh, Matthew Henry says about signs. He says, signs were often granted to those who desired them to confirm their faith, but they were denied to those who demanded them to excuse their unbelief. And so Jesus would often do signs even when people aren't asking for them, like the feeding of the 5,000. Or Jesus might perform a miracle in response to a humble, faith-filled request. But when people demanded a sign, Jesus always refused. Always. And so what we see here is that the miracles that Jesus performed, oftentimes the miracles in the New Testament, they served to validate the message or they validated the messenger. You see this a lot in the book of Acts as well. But the Pharisees, they weren't looking for proof. They had all of the proof that they needed. Enough proof to plot to try to kill Jesus. No, they were simply confirming their unbelief. I want you to imagine for a second that Jesus actually did do a miracle right then. The Pharisees come up to him and they say, hey, teacher, give us a sign. And he goes, all right, pillar of fire. And it just comes some, some miraculous, crazy thing. I would contend that the Pharisees still wouldn't believe, even if he did something miraculous right then, for two reasons. Number one, because they just saw him do something miraculous and they're plotting to kill him. And number two, it's not a problem with the things that we see. The problem is not our mind. The problem is our hearts. And Jesus is saying that the Pharisees are hard-hearted. He says, an evil, an adulterous generation asks for a sign. When Jesus was on earth doing his earthly ministry, he was filled with all of this prophetic imagery from the Old Testament that he would often bring out. And so as soon as he called them an adulterous generation, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. Through the Old Testament prophets and Isaiah and Jeremiah and the minor prophets, you often see this theme of adultery coming up in relationship to sin. God is frequently in the Old Testament describing Israel, describing the nation of Israel as his wife. Except it's a wife that's constantly running to other lovers. It's constantly going to other places to try to find fulfillment. Israel is constantly worshiping other gods. And so God, through the prophets, uses this metaphor of adultery. And I think this is, this is a powerful metaphor. Number one, because it frames sin as an act of cosmic adultery. And number two, because it tells us something very key about the nature of sin. Sin is not just the transgression of a law, even though it is that. Sin also breaks God's heart. And so that's what Jesus is doing by drawing on this, this Old Testament metaphor here. The Pharisees, they remind me of Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, Paul is talking, ironically, about uh, Gentiles and pagans who are before Christ. And it says this, it says, They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And so it is not a lack of brain power that the Pharisees have. How much of the Old Testament do you guys have memorized? How many, if you raise your hand, if you have 50% or more of the Old Testament <laughs> memorized there? No, okay, okay. 
40%, I'm just kidding, I won't, <laughs> I won't go all the way down. These guys had most or all of the Old Testament completely committed to memory. The entire law, the whole Pentateuch, that was just the entrance exam, was go ahead and recite the Pentateuch for us. Go ahead and recite the first five books of the entire Bible to us. Okay, and they go into it, right? I could get past maybe Genesis 1, 3 or so, and then I'd, uh, uh, I'd, I'd, start, uh, I'd start making things up probably. But these guys, they did not lack brain power. Their minds were not the problem. It was their hearts that were the issue. And so the reality is that our minds will always rationalize away based on what our hearts are believing, right? There was a, uh, there's a, uh, a, a clinical and moral psychologist, a guy named Jonathan Haidt, and he did uh, a significant amount of work on the kind of what we would call the connection of the brain and the heart. And he said that our reason, our rationale, always jumps to the defense of what he calls our moral intuition, right? Our affections, our deepest desires, whatever is in our heart. Our brain will jump to the defense of our heart. So the analogy he uses is it's like an elephant with a rider, a little tiny guy on top of the elephant. Do you think that that rider actually has a lot of control over that giant beast? Not really. He might think he does. But if the elephant decides it wants to go a direction, the rider is going that direction. And so he says in the same way, whatever way our heart is taking us, our heart is the elephant. And so our brain is the rider. Whatever way our heart is taking us, our mind will actually create narratives to defend whatever our heart is saying, believe it or not. Right? You may have seen this. You may have seen this in your own life. You may have seen it in the lives of family or the lives of friends. When your heart feels something, your mind will jump to its defense. And that's why in Christianity so much we talk about it's not just about mental ascension. It's not just about believing right doctrine or knowing right things. It's about allowing God to melt our hearts into a whole new shape. Because our mind will serve what our heart says. If Jesus did a miracle right then, they just would have rationalized it away like they did all of the other ones. We still rationalize away miracles oftentimes. And so you see this uh, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And so the rich man, Lazarus, they both die. Lazarus goes to heaven. Rich man goes down to hell, the place of separation. And the rich man, he's commanding Lazarus. He's saying, hey, send Lazarus back. You know, send him back to uh, rise from the dead and tell my brothers and warn them about this place because it is really not a good place. And Abraham responds to him and he says, they have the law and the prophets. He says, they won't believe even if somebody rises from the dead. And that's a shocking statement to us, right? I would like to think that I'm a little smarter than that, yeah? I would like to think that if somebody rose from the dead and gave me a message, I would probably listen to it after being incredibly freaked out for many days, right? I would listen to whatever they say, I would like to think. But the fact is, later in Matthew chapter 28, we do have a story of somebody rising from the dead, giving a message, and people still doubting, right? Matthew 28, this is after the resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus died on the cross, in the ground three days, rose from the dead. And in Matthew 28, 17, he's talking to his disciples, and this is, is such an amazing passage. It's encouraging to me in my doubts, too. But this is, uh, this is what he says here. 
It says, Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some of them doubted. They were looking at the resurrected Christ. And some of them still doubted. Our minds will always defend what our heart says. This is why we need God to melt our heart into a whole new shape. The Pharisees had some very specific expectations about what the Messiah was going to look like, about what the Messiah was going to do when he showed up. Right? The Messiah, he is someone who's in the line of David. And so the Pharisees, they thought that this, this messianic figure, when he came, he was going to be a political revolutionary. Right? The, Israel was under Roman occupation at that time, and the Romans were terrible. The Romans were evil. The Romans were brutal. And so, especially the religious elites, they thought, just you wait, Messiah's going to come. And then you'll get your comeuppance. He's going to come and he's going to kick you guys out. And he's going to set up Israel as the true kingdom on the earth. The Pharisees, they lusted after political power. And they were willing to make any compromise to get it. They were trying to win the culture war against this, this pagan empire. And they hoped that when the Messiah showed up, that he was going to put them in this place of great human authority and greatness and do all of these things. But when Jesus came, he brought a kingdom, but it was a kingdom that looked very different from the one that the Pharisees anticipated. Jesus came preaching an upside-down, inside-out kind of kingdom. Instead of coming and taking power for Israel... Jesus gave up power. Instead of striking down enemies, Jesus said, forgive your enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And then he went one step further, and he died for his enemies. It was completely different than the expectations that the Pharisees had. And so for them, it was not about proof. It was about Jesus not behaving the way that they wanted him to. They had specific things that they wanted him to do. And when he didn't do those things, they wanted him out of their lives. The fact is, we are not immune to this kind of thinking either. There's a uh, young couple at Radiance. Um, this girl is a member of our youth staff, and she is engaged, and they're going to be married uh, next month. Or no, wait, this month. What month is it? Is it August. It's August. They're going to be married this month in just a couple weeks, and we're super excited for them. And so they've been going through the whole premarital counseling process, right? And in premarital counseling, there's two things that are very important that, that any good premarital counselor will cover. Communication and expectations, right? These are important things for a healthy marriage to work. Communication and expectations. The reality is, is that when our expectations are not met in a relationship, either because we haven't communicated those well or because our expectations are simply unreasonable. When those expectations are not met and they're not communicated about, a tension begins to work its way into that relationship. And if that tension goes too far, then all of a sudden a bitterness starts to take hold of the heart. And that bitterness, that can create a wedge in two people in that relationship 
and trust between one and another begins to erode, right? You start thinking, maybe that person doesn't actually have my best interest in mind, right? And so when expectations are not met, it creates tension in a relationship. And in the same way, if Jesus is not behaving the way that we think he should, oftentimes a very subtle resistance starts to develop inside of our hearts. A subtle tension starts to develop inside of our minds. Jesus, I thought you were going to give me a good marriage. Jesus, you, you told me that if I raised my kids the way they should go, then they wouldn't depart from it. Jesus, I thought I was going to get that promotion. I thought I was going to get a better job. I thought I would have more money in the bank by this point in my life. I thought you were going to give me fulfillment. That's what your word says. But I still feel sad. If we're bringing these expectations to Jesus and we feel like he's not meeting them, then subconsciously we will begin to develop this tension. And so I want to challenge you with something today. If you are getting mad at God because he is not giving you a certain outcome, I would humbly challenge you that you are worshiping a Jesus of your own making. You're demanding a sign like the Pharisees did. Instead, we, we need to let Jesus flip our world upside down. We cannot cram Jesus into our box of preconceived notions or ideas or expectations. We need to let him come in and melt our hearts. We need to let our expectations be dashed if they need to be dashed so that his expectations can become a part of us, so that his kingdom can fill our hearts, so that he can fill us with joy and with peace and with love for him and love for one another. That is the path to peace. It's not Jesus giving us the circumstances that we so desire. Peace has to come from the inside, and so we need to let God change us radically from the inside out. So how do we do this? How do we do this? This sounds good, but how? Jesus goes on to tell them the story. Jesus, he starts out, he's saying, he says, uh, all right, well, I'm not really going to give you a sign. Okay, I'll give you a sign. Here it is. But then the sign that he gives them is really interesting, right? The sign that he gives them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. And in many ways, you could say this is kind of like the anti-sign. Jonah is not somebody who you would expect Jesus to compare himself to because Jonah was a terrible prophet. He was a horrible prophet. So I'll spend just a little bit of time recapping um, the book of Jonah. I won't spend too much time doing it. Uh, Tyler actually preached on the book of Jonah and Jesus as the greater Jonah back in May. And so I encourage you to go listen to that amazing message. It was incredible. So go check it out. I listened to it. So I encourage you to check that out. But uh, just, just real quick, um, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, right? Nineveh is sort of the capital of Assyria, which is one of Israel's greatest political enemies, right? They, they ended up taking the northern kingdom into captivity, and they are just bad, evil, horrific people. And so God says, all right, Jonah, I'm going to send you there. I'm going to send you into your worst nightmare, right? And so he says, Nope, and he goes completely the other way, right? He goes down to Joppa, and he buys a ticket for uh, Tarshish, which is like the biblical equivalent of Timbuktu, 
right? I'm going to go as far away from Nineveh as possible. And so he buys one ticket to not Nineveh, and he jumps in the boat, and he starts sailing away. And then all of a sudden, huge storm comes on him, right? And what's he doing in the middle of the storm? Sleeping. He's sleeping. This is not the sleep of faith that Jesus had when he was in the storm. This is a sleep of complete and total indifference. Jonah doesn't care about the pagan sailors that he's sailing with. Jonah doesn't care about the Ninevites, and so he's sleeping. So they wake him up, they have him, they say, call on your God, get him to do something, and he says, it's my fault. He says, I'm running away from God, and they say, why would you jump board our boats? What is wrong with you? And so he says, throw me over, but woe is me, throw me into the waves and it will cease. And instead of throwing him over immediately, they say no. It says they tried to row back harder to get to shore. They were doing everything they could to save the life of this man who was putting them in complete peril. And so the author of the book of Jonah is contrasting, in this case, the pagan sailors to Jonah. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, and oftentimes in the New Testament, the biblical authors are making the Jews look bad and making the pagans look a lot better. And that's what you see in the book of Jonah as well. And so eventually they do throw him overboard and the storm immediately stops. It doesn't say immediately. I'm assuming it was like like the VeggieTales version where they throw him in and it's just completely calm. And so I'm pretty sure that's that's, uh, accurate. I think that that was actually filmed on site. And so... So the storm stops and these pagan sailors get converted, right? The very thing that Jonah didn't want to do ends up happening. Pagans come to Yahweh. And... Jonah, he would rather die than do what God has asked him to do, right? He would rather drown. He'd rather go to the bottom of the ocean. And so he finally gets in the ocean, finally, and then gets swallowed by a giant fish, right? He's like, dang it, again. And so he has this sort of repentance moment, and then he gets vomited up on, this, on the land, and he's at the border of Nineveh, and so he goes, okay, fine, I'll do it here. And so he walks, he walks a third of the way into the city, gives a seven-word sermon, And the entire city repents. The entire city gives their heart to the Lord. Miraculously, right? And Jonah, he's not happy about this. He says, I knew you were gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so he is not happy with these Ninevites' repentance, right? He did not want this to happen. He he did not want his enemies to be saved. And so, but God is far more merciful than Jonah's expectations. And so what is the sign of Jonah that Jesus is talking about here? He points to a specific aspect of the story of this bad prophet. He says, just as Jonah will be in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And so he's saying that the sign, the only sign that he's going to give them is he is going to let them kill him. Jesus is going to let them put him on a cross. Jesus, think about who he's talking to at this point. He knows they're plotting to kill him. And this is the sign he gives them. He says, I know you're plotting, I know you're going to kill me, and I'm going to let you, because I love you. And I'm going to be in the ground in a tomb, cold and dead, for three days. And then on the third day, 
I'm going to come back. I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to resurrect. So this is the great sign. This is the great miracle that Jesus is pointing them to. They're looking for this miracle. They're looking to get Jesus to fit into their expectations. And he's saying the greatest miracle, the greatest sign is right here in front of you. It's the cross. It's the resurrection. It's Jesus himself. This is the sign that he's pointing them to. Then he goes on to say, the men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. So two really interesting groups, right? The Ninevites and the queen of the south, who's this kind of queen of Sheba, kind of interesting character. And I think why Jesus is bringing this up is because these are two groups that are non-Israelites. They don't have the covenant. They don't have the law. They don't have the prophets. Right? They have very little in terms of revelation. All they needed was a word. All they needed was a seven-word sermon. All they needed was to hear from afar of the wisdom of the king of Israel. And they responded. Their hearts were changed. Whereas the Pharisees have God himself standing in front of them. And they're demanding signs. So this is why he's telling the Pharisees this. I think that this passage also has something to say about the nature of truth. The nature of truth. Something very, very interesting. And so we um, live in an age that is marked by what we could call relativism. Right? Relativism is the idea that truth is relative. Right? And so your truth might be your truth, my truth might be my truth. It leads to moral relativism. What is right for you might not be right for me. Right? And so what we have is um, basically all of what, what postmoderns would say is that we all grow up in certain frameworks. We all have certain genetic dispositioning. We all have a certain culture that we live in that shapes how we think. And so all we're left with is seven billion individual perspectives. All we have is what I think. And how dare you tell me that what I think is any less valid than what you think. Right? That's what, that's what relativism says. And so we end up just following our hearts. Because that's all that we have to do. That's all that we have left. That's the only moral authority that we have. And so this will often lead to two things. It will either lead to general relativism, which is where we can't find meaning or purpose outside of ourselves, so we are left to create it. Right? We create our own meaning. We create our own purpose. We create our own truth. Or it leads to, number two, just a hopeless skepticism. Well, truth can't really be found. I mean, there's no way to actually find truth. So I guess I'll just watch Netflix. I guess I'll stop asking the big questions. Right? And we distract ourselves from the big questions of life, the big questions that Jesus has the answer to. But into the midst of that mess the Savior comes. Jesus brings us a version of truth that is far, far greater. You know, we can agree with the postmoderns that truth is not simply a set of propositions that we just believe. It's not just words on a page that we check off. Jesus is bringing a version of truth that is to be experienced 
He's bringing a version of truth that we, that we live in and that we live out. Jesus is offering a version of reality where God is right at the center where he should be. It's a version of reality that wrestles with the tough questions and gives grace in the midst of those doubts. But interestingly, though, what he does with the Pharisees here is he asserts responsibility and accountability. That's what he's doing when he's talking about these Ninevites. He says, you guys are free to be relative, relativists. You guys are free to say that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. But the Ninevites will stand up on the last day. Truth will be known. Real truth will assert itself in a way. And Jesus is challenging the Pharisees to be on the right side of that truth. Augustine, he says that we love truth when it enlightens us, but we hate it when it convicts us. But oh, how we need truth to convict us. The reality is that Jesus is unflinching truth. He is unmoving spiritual truth. Matthew chapter 21 Jesus says this. He says, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And so to what Jesus is saying here is to those who reject him, that truth will have a crushing element to it on the last day. But to those who receive Christ, to you who receive Christ this morning, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. This is the only rock This is the only anchor in the midst of the storm. This is the only solid foundation in the midst of our cultural tides that sway back and forth and back and forth. And this is what Jesus is offering us today. And so I would encourage all of us to examine ourselves. Is there a set of expectations that you have for Jesus? Is there a certain box that you're trying to fit him in? Or are you letting him blow up your box? Are you letting him flip your world inside out? Are you letting him flood you with unexpected joy and peace that you could never experience in any other way than just giving yourself wholeheartedly to the plans of Christ? Let's examine ourselves this morning. He's not a genie. He's not somebody that we can demand a sign from. He's a savior. And lastly, Jesus says that he is greater than the prophet Jonah. He is greater than Solomon. Oftentimes in um, theology, when you're talking about the person of Christ, one thing that you can talk about is what's called the three offices of Christ, right? And these three offices are that Jesus is the greatest prophet, Jesus is the greatest priest, and Jesus is the greatest king. And you've got two of these showing up right here. 
It says Jesus is greater than the prophet Jonah. Jesus is the one who doesn't just speak on behalf of God as a mouthpiece. He is the one who speaks as God. It says Jesus is greater than King Solomon. Solomon ruled an empire. Jesus rules the universe. And then just earlier in the chapter, amazingly, Jesus is talking about the Sabbath. He's talking about the temple. And he says, behold, someone greater than the temple is here. Jesus is the greatest priest. He is the high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He doesn't need to make sacrifices for himself. He's the ultimate sacrifice. And now he intercedes for us to the Father and sits at his right hand. Someone who sympathizes with us and someone who intercedes for us. Jesus is the greatest version of all of these things. And he accomplished it through the cross. Not through dominance like a human kingdom. He accomplished it through humility, through giving up his power. In the story of Jonah, it says that the only way that the waves were stilled was if Jonah was sacrificed over the edge. Jonah was thrown into the depths of the sea. And it was only then that the sea went still. In the same way, Jesus, he was thrown into the depths of separation from God. He was thrown into the depths of the torture of the cross. And the seas became still. The seas of God's wrath. The seas of our anxiety. The seas of our constantly clamoring for something to give us a sense of identity and fulfillment. In Christ, in the cross, those seas can be still. And we can experience peace. So that's what Jesus is pointing to us, pointing us to the sign of Jonah. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Jesus, we thank you for who you are. Thank you, Lord, that you, out of your love, you allowed yourself to be thrown into that storm. God, you allowed yourself to go to the cross. I pray, Lord, that we would, that we would receive you Lord, I pray that you would show us where our faulty expectations are, God. God, show us where we need to be challenged. So show us what box we're trying to fit you in. Show us if there is a tension between us and you, even if it's subconscious. And I pray that you would bring us to repentance, Lord. I pray you would show us your love. God, you are not just someone who comes and just, just um, asserts yourself, Lord. You invite us in. And you are doing that this morning. Lord, you are inviting us into that peace. You are inviting us into that hope. You are inviting us into a softened heart and a version of reality that has you firmly planted right in the middle of it, Lord. And so I pray that we would receive you this morning. Lord, if there's anybody here who has never received you, if there's anybody here who might be even still demanding a sign from you, Lord, I pray that you, would, that you would reach out to them. God, that you would speak to their hearts. That you'd give them the boldness to, to share what's been going on in their heart with somebody else, with a member of the congregation, with one of the elders here, Lord. I pray that you would be stirring hearts, transforming minds, and changing us from one degree of glory to the next, Lord. We pray all these things in your son's precious, precious name. Amen.